Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing two nothing. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field, going to the corner. Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead three two. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Denton, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Denton. Hi there everyone, I'm Bucky Denton. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Denton. We have a really special show planned for you today as we're going to chat with former Yankee first baseman Mark Teixeira. I'm so excited to get this chance to chat with Mark. Stick around for that. It's going to be a great conversation. Before we get there, though, with me on the line right now is Al Santaseri, editor of Chief Yankees Magazine. Hi, Al. Hey, how you doing? And we also have Yankees Magazine deputy editor John Schwartz. Hi, John. What's going on, Bucky? We got a great show coming on right now. Yeah, I know. I've been excited for this one for a while. I've definitely had plenty of opportunities in my career to talk to Mark Teixeira, and he's a good dude to talk to. He's got some good stories, too. I can't wait, man. He's a great guy, and I played baseball with his dad in high school. How about that? That's unbelievable. Talk about a small world. What kind of player was his dad? His dad was a really good player. I mean, we won a state championship in 1969. I mean, uh, and to win a state championship in the state of Florida was tough. We lost in 68. We got beat by Manny Crespo, a guy that went on and had a pretty good career in in baseball. And uh, we came back in 69 and won it all. And what a thrill. Oh, man, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to talk to Mark, too. Well, why don't we get right to it, then? Let's go. Hey everyone, I'm Bucky Dent and I have a super guest with me today, Mark Teixeira from the 2009 World Champion Yankees and along with us is Al and John and oh my God, I mean we've just been rambling on here a little bit Tex but I'm so glad to have you on the show and uh, uh, you know we were talking about you know some really really great things you know a lot of the people don't know that I played with your dad in high school and uh, you know we had some great stories but uh, how's he doing? 
He, he's doing great, Bucky, and thanks for having me on with you. And, uh, it's funny, my dad, up until the time that I became a, a major leaguer, my dad's claim to fame was that he played high school ball with Bucky Dent. So that was that was pretty cool. So he went from being Bucky Dent's teammate to, to Mark Teixeira's dad, uh, which is hey, funny in that? his life. Yeah. You know, before we get started, though, I mean, uh, I want to wish you a happy birthday, pal. Yeah, 40. yeah, that's a big one. That's a yeah, big one. April eleventh, uh, forty years old. So uh, pretty special for me. I can't believe I'm forty. I still feel like a kid. I think that's the important thing. That's the most important thing. But hey, let's go back to two thousand one when I actually ran into your dad. You know, I lost track of him after high school, and I was watching baseball one night. And Georgia Tech was playing Clemson or something like that, and I see this guy Texera comes up, and I said, I wonder if that's the son of of John, the guy that I played with in high school. And, you know, and didn't think any more of it until 2001 and the Texas Rangers drafted you number five in the draft. And you and your dad came down. And I'll never forget, uh, we went out on the field and I was hitting ground balls to you. You were catching them at third base that day. So I I saw your dad stand back there and I walked back there and uh, I said, you go to Hialeah? And he goes, I sure did. And so we had a great conversation, you know, and I'd lost track because he had went into the Navy, you know, but we had a great conversation. And then from there on, man, uh, you were a Texas Ranger and uh, I'm sorry I missed you. I got let go after 2001, had to go someplace else, but you, you, that's where you started your career, and that was that was awesome. Yeah, 2001. It, it it almost feels like yesterday, Bucky. I mean, um, you know, when you get drafted, you know, in baseball, you, you're, the days and the years go by so quickly, and and literally from the time that I signed my first professional contract in 2001 to the day I retired in 2016, basically felt like it was a flash. <laughs> And, uh, you know, obviously a lot happened in that time, but man, I, I can remember playing ball at Georgia Tech and getting drafted by the Rangers in, in 01. And I remember that day, the, the best thing about that day working out in, in the ballpark in Arlington was it was, you know, it was a midsummer day, really hot. And all of the players told me, they're like, Hey kid, just get the ball in the air, get the ball in the air. It's going to go. And I noticed how the ball jumped off the bat and how the ball carried at big league ballparks. And I'm like, man, I can't wait to get here. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, you know, the ball flew out of Texas in right field. You know, they had like a wind tunnel that would come around and the ball would just jet stream out to right field. I mean, guys like Palmero, you know, he'd hook that ball in the air and it would just it would just go. But uh, I got to tell you a funny story. The day that you signed, you know, all the coaches, you know, we knew you were coming in. And, you know, so uh, Doug Melvin, I guess, had started the negotiation and he walks in and we were all sitting there as coaches and he goes... Well, guys, I'm out of it at four million. You know, we all looked at each other and we said, "Oh my God!" So we got up and we went out and took batting practice. You know, we played the game and we walked in and he go, he comes back in and he goes, "Well, we got him for nine and a half." And I said, "Holy cow!" I said, "Holy cow, uh, Doug! What the heck did they choke you or something like that?" I, I, I <laughs> remember a, very vividly. We had a laugh. That, that's funny. It's a funny story because I remember very vividly sitting in the seats with Tom Hicks, who was the owner at the time, and. And Mr. Hicks and I uh, ended up having a very good relationship. And I kind of sat down and I said, well, you know, Mr. Hicks, if I sign, and he stopped. He goes, what do you mean if you sign? 
He said, you're signing. <laughs> so it was probably <laughs> after that conversation that, that uh, Mr. Hicks and my agent got together and, and got the deal done. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about your dad, you know, uh, did he play a big part in, in uh, you know, your younger years? Was he the guy that started you to be a switch hitter? Absolutely. My, my dad is uh, and was the most important person in my entire career. You know, he's still my best friend to this day, a guy that I, I talked with a couple times a week. And you know, he, he played ball uh, with you at, at Hialeah in, in Miami and then went on to the Naval Academy and had a, a pretty good college career, but he knew he was never going to be a big leaguer. 5'10", slow, uh, you know, short guy, not a ton of power. You know, he was a really good college player, but he basically looked at me as I got into my teenage years and said, Mark, you have more you know, natural talent than I that I could ever imagine and, and that I ever had. Let, let me help you with, help you with the mental side of the game. Let me help you just you know become more focused. And this is what you need to do. And so you know he was basically my coach, but it was more of a of a mental and and physical and spiritual coach rather than X's and O's because. Like you said, at you know, 15 years old, my dad said, "Mark, I can't teach you anything about hitting. <laughs> uh, what I can teach you is what I can teach you is about you know maybe plate discipline and and swinging at good pitches and in different situations what you should be looking to do." So uh, you know he was a guy who who I called after every single game in college and pro baseball, every single game, no matter if it was a West Coast game in Oakland or, or Anaheim, whatever it might be, I'm calling him and just talking about the game and what happened and you know, checking up on mom and, and seeing what's going on at, at home. But yeah, um, still to this day, one of my biggest fans and, um, or, you know, my, my single biggest fan, but one of my best friends. Now, when you were a senior in high school and you got drafted by the Boston Red Sox, did you have aspirations of going to college? Did he, was he trying to lean you maybe towards college, you know, cause Georgia tech was, was a great school and they got a great coach. And uh, did he kind of take you through that decision as far as, you know, signing and, and, and going, did he lean you more towards going to college? You know what? We had, we had a very difficult decision to make when I was in high school, I got drafted by the Red Sox. Um, but, but the nature of, of when I got drafted and how I was drafted was a little bit tough. You know, some people know the story that you know, I was projected to be uh, a first-round draft pick in the top 15 picks. The Boston Red Sox had the number nine pick and wanted to do a pre-draft deal, which back in the day, you know, everything's kind of slot money now, and it's a little bit easier to sign prospects. But back in the day, there, there really wasn't pre-negotiated deals, and, and the bonuses were all over the place. And so my agent said, you know what, Mark, don't don't agree to a deal before the draft. Once they draft you, we'll negotiate and, and you know, we'll get you signed. Well, the Red Sox weren't happy that I didn't take the pre-negotiated deal and spread it around to the entire league that I wasn't going to sign. So I went from being a projected first-round draft pick to not getting picked until the ninth round. And lo and behold, who drafts me? The Boston Red Sox. <laughs> because, hmm. because no one else was going to draft me. And so that just really rubbed us the wrong way. It taught me about the business of baseball. People ask me, what, you know, why are you so business savvy you know, even, even now to this, to this day and while you were a player? I said, well, I was 18 years old and my, my draft hopes were, were crushed by the business of baseball. And so I got smart. So I think, Bucky, you know, it really came down to principles for me. Um, I, I wasn't going to feel good about starting my pro career with a team that um, had done something like that and, and kind of crushed my dreams of being a first-round draft pick. So I was happy to go to Georgia Tech, had the best three years of my life, met my wife, 
and um, was in a much better financial situation coming out three years later. I think so. I mean, let me take you back to when I signed in Hialeah. You know, I was <laughs> everybody thought I was going to play football, and I got drafted back then. They had two drafts, you know, in June and in January, and I got drafted number one uh, by the Cardinals twice, you know, uh, but in the secondary phase, and I didn't sign. And the White Sox wound up drafting me, and I signed for twelve thousand dollars. Man, I thought I was rich. <laughs> Yeah, the well, you know what we we appreciate all of the uh, all of the work that guys like you did to build up our sport because if it weren't for the great Yankee teams of you know of the seventies and and bringing you know baseball to TV, you know, we we wouldn't have our uh, we wouldn't have the contracts that we have today in Major League Baseball. Were you a Yankee fan or were you an Orioles fan growing up? I was an Orioles fan. You know, I grew up just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, went to Mount St. Joseph High School in Baltimore, and and we were diehard Orioles fan. Loved the team. Unfortunately, the last you know between 1983 when the Orioles won their last World Series and the mid 90s, the Orioles weren't very good. So I had man, I had years and years of bad Orioles teams. In, in the old uh, Memorial Stadium. And then once Camden Yards was built, it really brought an energy back to the city for, for the Orioles. And they had a really good run in the mid-90s, as you know. But yeah, I was an Oriole fan. And as soon as I signed with the Texas Rangers, that all kind of faded away because you, you have a, a love and a you know, connection to your hometown uh, of Texas rather than, rather than Baltimore. Mark, you brought up the, um, you know, the Yankees teams of the late 70s. And I can't help to think you and you and Bucky have another similarity here in the sense that he was one of you know the many players that George Steinbrenner brought to the Yankees to really get them over the hump and of course Bucky's contributions and the contributions of some of the other great players on those teams did get the Yankees over the hump winning it in you know the the World Series in 77 and 78 and when you came to the Yankees uh and I obviously covered you for the first uh or you know your whole career with the Yankees but you know I remember when you signed here, when CC Sabathia, AJ Burnett signed, you know, relatively within a you know same time frame, there it was kind of like a similar type of situation where you guys were really going to take us over the top, so to speak, and of course you did. So I just wanted to ask both of you guys to kind of talk about the pressure and also the excitement of coming to New York and to the Yankees, you know, with those goals uh, in mind. Yeah, Bucky, why don't you go first because you did it first. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, growing up, I was always a Yankee fan. You know, I mean, uh, I used to watch the Yankee games, you know, black and white TVs, you know, back when the World Series was on during the daytime. So when I got drafted by the White Sox, you know, I played there. I love playing in Chicago. But then the rumor got out in spring training in 1977 that it was a possibility that I'd be traded to the Yankees. And I really got excited. And uh, it came down to the last day of spring training. You know, we were going to open up in Toronto. That was Toronto's first season. And uh, uh, the phone rang. I was packing some stuff to go get on the plane, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and I hear this voice go, is this Bucky Dent? And I go, yeah. And he goes, this is George Steinbrenner. I go, get out of here, you know. <laughs> and he says, no, this is George. And uh, he says, I got a deal to bring you to New York, and uh, all you got to do is sign a contract. I says, I'm in. About five minutes later, I signed, and uh, I, I'll never forget walking into Yankee Clubhouse that first time, walking in with my bags and just kind of looking around and, you know, hearing, you know, the people say, you know, there's there's ghosts in here, you know, and um, I remember putting my bag down and Billy Martin came around the corner and he says, hey, great to have you get a haircut. And I was shaking, man. I went over, put my bag down and I'll never forget going out taking batting practice, but it was the biggest thrill 
of my career to be able to, to go play for the Yankees. Yeah, and, and you know, my story is very similar. Is you know, when, when you play Major League Baseball, there's one team that sticks out, whether it's on the road or or at home. You know, when you play the Yankees, you know it's something different. And you know, I always loved playing in the old Yankee Stadium. And so when I had a chance to play first base for the New York Yankees and, and sign a long-term contract and be a part of kind of a, a new wave of players, as as you mentioned, signing AJ Burnett and CC Sabathia in the same offseason, you know, we knew we had high expectations. And so coming into that first season, it's like, okay, I'm playing for the greatest franchise in sports history. We hadn't won a World Series in New York since 2000. I mean, think about, that's a long time, 2000 to 2008, they hadn't won a World Series. So 2009 shows up, George Steinbrenner spends a whole bunch of money. Now, he, he wasn't running the team day-to-day at that point um, as his health was deteriorating, but the day I signed, I, I had a phone conversation with the boss, uh, and he was excited about, about having me on the team and the additions of AJ and CC because he was tired of losing. <laughs> and so I think that was the, the most pride that I had, and uh, Bucky, I'm sure it was the same for you, is that... When you win a championship for the Yankees, it's not just you and your teammates. You know, it, it is an entire city. It's, it's fans all over the world that are Yankee fans. And so it just means more when, when you win with the pinstripes. Absolutely. Now, tell me, do you got the ball from the last out? I gave it to, to Hal Steinbrenner. So, um, oh, you a, did? Yeah, oh. it's a funny story. So, so I caught the ball. And my body literally was numb. <laughs> like I, I, I like blacked out. I caught the ball. And I, as I'm running towards Mariano Rivera and, and the rest of my teammates for the dog pile, I had to actually look down into my glove to make sure the ball was still there because I couldn't feel anything. So oh, I take I the ball out of my glove. I put it in my back pocket. We go through, you know, we, we do the dog pile and everyone's hugging. Someone from Major League Baseball comes over and says, hey, I want to authenticate that ball. I said, great, you know, so he, he put the sticker on it and gave it right back to me. And so I, I come home and, and I'm, I get the ball out. I'm like, you know what, this isn't mine. This is, this is for the Yankees. This is for the team, for the city, whatever. So I, um, I had somebody put it in a, in a really nice plaque and, and kind of a shadow box and, you know, 27th out of the 27th World Series. And then I presented it to the Steinbrenner family um, uh, beginning of next season. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. That's awesome. You know, you guys uh, are the last team to win, but, you know, tell me about some of the guys that you played with because I know that uh, my 77, 78 group of guys, they were just not only characters, uh, but they had character on the field. And your team seemed to emulate that. I mean, you know, we had guys that were funny that, you know, could keep the team loose. We had, you know, we had guys that were more quiet. We had guys that were serious. But tell me about some of the guys that you played with on that team. Yep, yep, you're, you're exactly right, Bucky. We had a team of, of superstars that were really a close-knit team. Um, and now, were we all best friends? No, that's not, you know, in the real world, there's no group of 25 to 30 men that are all going to be best friends. But we all had the same goals. We knew what was expected of us. We had a professionalism that we, that we carried out day to day, but we also enjoyed playing. We enjoyed winning. And you know, the guys that I loved on that team was a guy like Nick Swisher, who we traded for, actually from Chicago, traded for Swish in the offseason. And he came in, and he's a guy who 
can kind of break down barriers, right? So, so you have these, these incredible superstars, you know, Derek Jeter and, and Alex Rodriguez and Mario Rivera and these kind of guys, Hall of Fame caliber players. But then you had young guys that we really needed to rely on, the Phil Cokes of the world, the, the David Robertsons of the world, the Brett Gardners of the world. And, and a guy like Nick Swisher could kind of come and bridge the gap, let guys have fun, let their hair down a little bit. Uh, and I just I really enjoyed that team because we enjoyed winning and we enjoyed winning together. And um, and the, the books are written about, you know, Mo and Andy Pettit and Derek Jeter. But, you know, I'll always remember, you know, trading for a guy like Jerry Hairston or trading for a guy like Eric Hinsky and them getting big hits down the stretch or making a big play down the stretch because it takes 25 guys to win a World Series. Yes, it does. And Jerry Harrison, I played with his dad, and his grandfather was an amazing man in the White Sox organization. He used to be down in rookie ball. How'd you like hitting in Yankee Stadium? I mean, you know, I, I, I played in the O, oh, and my God, I mean, it's 454 or 434 to left center field. And they, they said, you didn't hit many home runs. No kidding, man. You hit the ball in the air, it'll left center field, you're out. But that new stadium, you talk about Arlen, it seems like that ball flies out to right field pretty good, too. It really does. And, you know, it, it was a blessing and a curse for me, Bucky, is that, you know, as I got older, and this is something that Chipper Jones told me. He, he said, I played with Chipper when I was in Atlanta in 2007, 2008. And as switch hitters, we would spend a lot of time together. Our lockers were next to each other. And he just told me, he said, Tex, you're, you're in the prime of your career now, and enjoy it. Because as you get older, you're not going to be able to do everything that you've been able to do now. And I kind of looked at him, I'm like, Chip, you know, I, I'm in good shape. I'm going to be fine. But what he meant, he's he, very smart, one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet on a baseball field. And what he meant was, as you get older, your bat speed declines a little bit. Even your eyes might decline a little bit. You know, you're, everything gets a little bit tougher to do. And when I was young, in the prime of my career, I could hit balls out of the park all over the place. As I got older, like you said, Bucky, that left, that left center field ball as a left-handed hitter, kind of oppo center field shot, was getting caught. And I had to make a decision, okay, well, if that ball's getting caught, you know, that's X amount of outs and X amount of, of, of balls that aren't going to be home runs or doubles. I got to start pulling the ball more. And so it really took a toll on, on my average. My power numbers were still really good because, you know, I could hit the ball out of right field at will, left-handed. But my average went down a little bit because you add in the fact that, that teams started shifting late in my career and the fact that if I hit the ball to left center field at Yankee Stadium, even even in the new stadium, it was an out. Um, you know, it, it definitely took its toll on my average. The, the shift, I mean... You know what? I'll tell you an interesting story. You know, when I was doing all the defense in Texas, you know, we I started moving guys around and stuff like that. And I had moved the third baseman, Dean Palmer, way off the line one time towards the middle and moved the second baseman right behind, you know, shortstop. And Johnny Oates come over to me and he says, no, you got to put that third baseman back over at third base. I'll tell you later. And I, I was like stunned because he had never said anything to me. So I moved Palmer back over, you know, closer to third base. And so after the game, he came over to me and he says, you know why I told you to do that? And I go, no. He said, Bobby Cox told me, you got to leave the third baseman in a position where he could catch a pop-up in foul territory. And I was like, it, it, it didn't register me right, right away. But then 
um, I started thinking about it and he was right. You know, I mean, if you move way guys way over to the other side and I saw it in Yankee stadium a few years and I started chuckling to myself where Yankees were playing the Orioles. They moved everybody over there and somebody hit a pop-up right over the coach's box and nobody caught it. <laughs> and with two outs, the Yankees went on to score like four or five runs with two outs because that ball wasn't caught. And I just started smiling, you know, at Johnny Oates, yeah. you know, he would, what a, what a great manager and what a great guy, but that was interesting. So the shift, yeah, I was going to ask you about the shift, you know, did it start to affect you a little bit? It did, you know, and, and I, I tried to, to combat the shift, but the fact of the matter is, is, and you know, this Bucky, any good player knows this. If you have a right hit, you know, I was always a switch hitter. So I never had, I didn't have fastballs going away from me very much. Any fastball was coming in on me as guys started to throw cutters, as guys started to throw 95 to 100 miles an hour consistently, as soon as someone knew that, that a left-handed hitter, especially a big, slow left-handed hitter, was trying to inside out a ball and kind of flick it to, to the, the left side of the infield as a, as a slow ground ball, they're going to pound you in. And, you know, I tried for probably two months of the, I think it was the 2012 season, I might have tried it, and I was awful. I probably hit 100 for two months. And I realized that there's a reason that the shift works because it is almost impossible, just physically impossible to take a hard fastball middle in and, and especially a cutter or anything off speed and, and hit a slow ground ball the other way as a left-handed hitter. So what I tried to do is just I tried to have plate discipline. I tried to hit more doubles and, and home runs because those are, those are very difficult to catch. But the fact is, is that the shift has, has completely taken left-handed hitters and gotten in our heads, um, and it's discriminatory against left-handed hitters. You, know, you look at guys like Bryce Harper, one of the best hitters in baseball, I mean, you know, he, he loses 40 points a year on, on shift. Well, here's a question I always had, though, about that, which is, you know, as a switch hitter, you know, everyone would always say when, for example, when Mo was pitching and he knew, you know, Mo would just tear apart lefties with a cutter. You know, but lefties, obviously, switch hitters aren't comfortable hitting righty against the righty. Yeah. Did you ever wonder, as that was happening late in your career, like, maybe I'm better off just not hitting left-handed as much? No, no, that would have been, that would have been a disaster. Um, I'd, so at 13 years old, I became a full-time switch hitter. Um, if, I would, if I would all of a sudden try to hit, and by the way, by the end of my career, I wasn't a very good right-handed hitter, just with some physical limitations with my hip and my knee and my, my right-handed power really got sapped the last couple years of my career. But yeah, if I, if I would try to hit right-handed against right-handed pitchers, you know, then you, then you put a whole new set of problems in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that baseball, there's a lot of things that baseball could probably change right now. Outlawing the shift makes sense to me um, for a lot of different reasons. Pace of play, again, it's discriminatory against just left-handed hitters, which is uh, there's no other sport where just simply a defensive alignment you know, only hurts a certain group of players, you know, so there's a reason that there's, you know, illegal formations in football. There's a reason there's illegal defenses in basketball. And I think baseball really should look at the shift and it would, it would keep the pace of play up. I think more balls would get in play because left-handed hitters are saying, well, I might as well just try to hit a home run every time up because if I hit anything hard on the ground or a hard low line drive, it's going to be an out. So uh, I, I think baseball needs to look at that. 
So how would you do it? it would, would it be just a matter of having needing to have a certain number of players on either side of second base? Or how, how do you think is a way that you could legislate that? I think it's very simple. I think no, no infielders off of the infield dirt. I think you need to stay on the infield dirt. And I think um, no, you know, no second baseman on the other side of, of second base or shortstop, depending on the hitter. So you can stand right behind second base if you want, but you can't go over to the other side. You know, I agree with that. I, I think the infielders need to stay on the dirt. I mean, come on. I mean, putting a guy out in like short right center field like softball and a guy hitting a bullet in a one hopper and need to get thrown out of first base, man, that's, that, you know, that's discouraging. So really I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you about that, you know, keeping them on the, in, on, on the dirt in the infield. If you think about today's baseball game, all we talk about is how long the games are and how the pace of play is so bad. And we're trying to put pitchers' clocks and all these kind of things. The fact of the matter is, if I'm a hitter and I feel more confident about shortening up and putting the ball in play because there are a few holes out there, I'll do that. But as a left-handed hitter, and I know that pitcher out there is throwing 95 miles an hour, busting me in with hard cutters and hard fastballs and then throwing you know, soft stuff away, I'm just saying, you know what, I'm going to keyhole this thing and I'm going to try to put the ball in the air. The modern baseball game is home runs, walks, and strikeouts. And it's not fun to, for me. I mean, I, I, I love watching baseball games when things are happening and when there's, there's action on the field. But you'll watch a couple games a week where the only scoring is by home runs. There are very few singles. There's no hit and run. There's no stealing. No one's making plays in the field because these pitchers are too good and the hitters are too strong that any time there's a lull in the game, everyone just tries to hit home runs. What do you think about this stuff, you know, that, you know, I hear and it kind of drives me nuts a little bit about launch angle, you know, spin ratio on the ball and, you know, we don't steal bases anymore. We don't bunt anymore. I mean, it's almost like we're, we're not playing the game anymore. I agree, Bucky. I I think that I got out of baseball at the right time. You know, I retired in 2016, and I was starting to have conversations with um, you know, front office, uh, analytic personnel, whatever you want to call them, that would come up and ask me a question or, or, or give me some data or this and that and be like, well, that's great, but that's not, I don't know how to do that. It's, a, you know, it's almost like you know, tell, telling Shaq, like, hey, listen, Shaq, you need to be a much better passer on the perimeter. Like, well, okay, I'm, I'm sure that would help the team, but I'm 7'5 and I weigh 350 pounds. I just stay inside and dunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good analogy. <laughs> there are so many great natural players in our game, natural ability all over the place. When we layer on too many analytics on top of that, I think it actually takes away from their ability. I totally agree. And, you know, the other thing that I noticed about four or five years ago, you know, is that there's so much soft toss. You know, when I went back, I left Texas in 2001. I went back to the minor leagues with uh, Kansas City in 2002, and Kevin Long was my hitting coach. And I was, like, amazed at how much hitting they did. I mean, we had guys starting hitting at two, doing soft toss, you know, coming back in, you know, after batting practice, going to the cage, staying after the game. And the one thing that I noticed was soft toss, you're always looking down. You're looking down. When I played, you, you wanted, you, you know, all the pitchers, you know, you, you wanted them to get the ball up. But then I started noticing there was so much this launch angle and loops and guys started throwing a ball right by guys up. 
because every their 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 eyes were always looking down. You agree with that? I I, I do. You know, I I think Kevin Long is one of the best hitting coaches in all of baseball. One of the best. He's he's one of the good ones. There are way too many hitting coaches in baseball that are are worried about overwork and if I can just get your swing perfect or get your long angle angle perfect, you'll be such a you know such a better player. Fact of the matter is that might work in golf when a ball's sitting on a tee, but when the ball's moving, when you have different you know arm slots from pitchers, you need to put the barrel on the ball. I and mean, what's the best way to put the barrel on the ball? I'm not sure if the the huge increase in strikeouts is because of this, but you know when we when I was coming up, my first hitting coaches, was, you know, Rudy Jaramillo was the best guy that that, that I, I had Texas. as a young player. Outstanding. You know him him mm-hmm. and Kevin Long are two of the, the the greatest hitting coaches that I could have ever asked for, and Rudy was all about in the box. You're breathing, swinging in good pitches. He said, Tex, you know how to hit the ball. You know how to put the barrel on the ball. I don't want to make you overswing, get you tired, get you in some sort of uh, robotic atmosphere where you're doing the same thing for three hours a day, and then you get into the, onto the field and the guy throws you a huge curveball backed up with a 95-mile-an-hour cutter because that tee work or that soft toss work that you did isn't going to help you hit that pitch. It's your natural ability to be able to, to keep your weight back, keep your eye on that ball, and, and put the barrel to it. So, you know, I, I try to tell young kids, I'm like, listen, man, I can't teach you how to hit. If you don't already know how to hit, then go play lacrosse, go play something else. But if you know how to hit, there are certain little things that I could probably help you with that can make you better and make you more consistent. But I truly believe hitting a baseball is a God-given ability. And, and any type of work and, and coaches that, that want to help you out, it's really to get the most out of your natural ability. Well, you just said something that I think was, is really important that I tell my grandkids all the time. Get the barrel to the ball. Quit worrying about your hands. There's so much of this stay inside the ball, stay inside. I said, if you get your barrel to the ball, whether it's outside or whether it's inside, your hands are going to be inside in, inside naturally, you know? Mm-hmm. And Elson Howard, Elson Howard, I'd walk up to Elson, you know, when I was in New York, and I'd say, hey, Ellie, what am I doing wrong? He goes, son, you got to get the club head out. Just yeah. get the club head out. And I'd start chuckling. We didn't really have technical hitting instructors until the first one I had was Charlie Lau. Charlie Lau was like the first real hitting structure that we had. You know, everybody would just see the ball and hit the ball, mm-hmm. see the ball and hit it, and that was it. You know, it's funny. If, if, if you asked me to put a ball on a tee and say, all right, Mark, put the barrel on the ball, hit a line drive, I'd do that, and I'd write down what I did. What I did is I put the barrel to the ball. If you asked a, an analytics guy or, or, you know, a Harvard MBA that's a, you know, mathematician, he could probably write five pages of things that I did to get the barrel to the ball and to hit that line drive. Do I really want five pages of notes in my head every time I'm trying to take a swing or every time I'm in the, in the box? And I think that's the point. The point is that we have this ability to, you know, to get the head out, get the club out, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's what everyone does. It's like, you know, every basketball player wants to get the ball on the hoop. You know, every, you know, every football player just wants to get the ball across the goal line. It's, it's very simple goals that we have in baseball. And I think we tend to complicate it a little bit too much. 
You know, I, I have a I have a question. I, you know, I, it's a theory that somebody told me a long time ago, and you were the last team in 2009 to win a, a world championship. You had Matsui, Damon, Posada, Cabrera, Gardner, Swisher, Hensky, and Cano. And somebody told me a long time ago that the Yankees have never won a world championship without left-handed power. You know, and you guys were the last team going on 10 years now with not winning a world championship. What's your theory on that? You know what? I, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think when you look at the, the way that Yankee Stadium sets up for left-handed hitters, you don't have to be a great left-handed hitter to have success at Yankee Stadium. And so I think, listen, Johnny Damon, stud. Hideki Matsui, stud. Jorge Posado, stud. These guys were all great players. They were towards the end of their career. Then you took our younger guys, you know, Brett Gardner, left-handed hitter, younger guy, Melky Cabrera, Robinson Cano, all younger guys. We, we had a lot of talent that, that hit left-handed on all spectrums of our career. You know, I was, I was a middle-aged, kind of in the prime of my career in 09. But what Yankee teams with left-handed power does is it gives you an edge against everybody else because even that you know, good fly ball or, or that, that ball that you didn't just get can still be a big home run. And every pitcher gets really, really tight when they see a Yankee Stadium lineup with a bunch of lefties. You know, if, if, if I'm Justin Verlander and I'm up against the 2019 Yankees and I see all these righties, I'm saying, hey, man, I can pitch to these guys. I, I know how to pitch to these right-handed hitters to get them out. If I see a bunch of lefties, I'm going, man, I better not make a mistake. Even, a, even an average hit fly ball could be a home run tonight. That's what, what left-handed teams do for the Yankee Stadium. Mark, I know that, you know, obviously there's uncertainty in terms of when baseball is going to be played again. And we talked, you know, a lot about you being on the last Yankees team to, to win a championship. Assuming baseball is played soon this year or whenever it is, I, you know, just would love to hear your thoughts and, and obviously Bucky and, and I have talked about this and quite a bit with the addition of Garrett Cole, how you kind of sum up this Yankees team. This Yankees team was built for a championship. I mean, you look at that roster and you go, wow, you know, probably the only thing just on the roster specifically that you worry about is the lack of left-handed hitting. So, so if the Yankees do lose to a team in the playoffs with some dominant right-handed starting pitching, you can look back and go, oh, man, we probably should have, should have had a few more lefties in there. You know, that being said, my biggest concern about the Yankees this year is health because that was the problem last year, right? So you've already had Luis Severino go down. Mm-hmm. Seve, when he's right, is an ace. You know, so you would have had Garrett Cole and Luis Severino as two aces on your team, and I think that would have put the Yankees, like, I mean, they would have been the favorites. But when Seve went down, you know, Paxton's got, you know, a little, some back issues. He had surgery. You have the issues with Aaron Judge. You have the issues with Giancarlo Stanton. You definitely have some injury worries about this team that, you know, if, it, if it's not their year, if the Yankees don't win a World Series this year, it's probably going to be because of health. But that being said, I mean, Brian Cashman's done a great job of, of putting all the chips in, in, uh, in place. And if Garrett Cole is the same Garrett Cole that we saw last year, they are, um, they are the best team in the American League. 
I'm glad you brought up Giancarlo Stanton. I just did a, a story with him in spring training. And, you know, obviously he's a guy that came here with huge expectations coming off an MVP season with the Marlins and had a really good year, I think, in, in 2018 in terms of hitting 38 home runs. And obviously it wasn't that MVP caliber season, but, you know, that was a, certainly a career year. And then he had all the injuries last year, which was, you know, nothing new for him yet injury problems with the Marlins and in interviewing him and talking to some people, obviously I, you know, I, I know how determined he is to kind of restart building his legacy, if you will, and, and kind of get back to where he was or somewhere close to where he was. I don't know how well you know him or if you have a relationship with him or not, but what are your thoughts on, you know, what he can bring to the Yankees again, whether it's it's in 2020 or 2021 or, or, or whenever. I don't, I don't know Jean-Carl very well. We played on the um, World Baseball Classic team together briefly in 2013. Unfortunately, I, I blew out my wrist in, in that World Baseball Classic, so I didn't, didn't get to play in any games. But, you know, I think Jean-Carl Stanton is, is a little bit of victim of his success. You know, when you have a huge contract, when you have an MVP under your belt, you've done amazing things early in your career – you know, people expect you just to be Superman. And I think Bucky would probably agree, baseball is a humbling game. And you, you've either been humbled or you're about to be humbled. And I think last year with him only playing 19 games was probably his first taste of, hey, you know, health is fleeting, success is fleeting. So I think what the, what the Yankees need to do is get him healthy. That, that, that's number one. If this guy could just play 130 games a year, I wouldn't run him out there for 150 games. He's a big guy. He swings hard. He plays. He plays the outfield hard, and I would I would play him at DH for most of the season. If he could play 130 games, he could hit 50 home runs for you. But it's all about the health, I, and I think Aaron Aaron Judge is in that same boat. We will see as those guys get older who gets the majority of the DH slots. But I think both of those guys, you just want to keep healthy because um, with how big and strong they are, all they have to do is make contact. They just got to touch it, and it's going to go. Mark, you and Bucky, you guys have spoken a lot about some of the times that both of you spent back in Texas. And you know, it gets me thinking about, obviously, the fact that the ballpark on Arlington is now gone, and they're, at some point, you know, the new stadium will open. I'm kind of curious for both of you guys. Uh, when, when you get together with guys who played the game or when you talk to people, things like that as they happen – does it feel like the game is kind of moving away from you in some ways? You know, I, I always laugh, Mark, at your comments when, you know, Glaber started wearing 25 and you were like, oh, great, people are going to be buying 25 jerseys, you know, keep keep it going. You know, <laughs> what's that balance, I guess, between feeling like you still are a part of this and kind of watching parts of the game move away from you? Well, I definitely thought that, you know, towards the, the last few years of my career that the game was was kind of passing me by. You know, first of all, I think it's a young man's game. I think it's very difficult for veterans to keep up in today's game just with with the advances of nutrition and with how good these guys are young. I mean, I played, you know, Bucky grew up in Miami, so it was probably a little different, but I played baseball four or five months out of the year in Maryland. I, I didn't play all year round. And and most of these guys are, are coming up. They have nutritionists. They have, they have strength coaches. They have hitting coaches. And they get to the big leagues at 21, 22 years old, and they're, they're men. They're in the prime of their career. They've had so much information. They've had so much support staff that I just feel like it's a young man's game now no matter what. And, and as an analyst now for ESPN, I watch the game, and, and it is different. You know, like, like we talked about earlier, home runs, walks, and strikeouts are, are kind of the norm. 
And I loved seeing a guy lay a bunt down or seeing a guy do a hit and run. You know, I was a guy that played first base. I wanted the ball hit to me. I wanted, I wanted the, the pitcher to – Kenny Rogers, I loved playing behind Kenny Rogers because he worked fast and he wanted ground balls. And, and we'd actually have a two-hour and ten-minute game every now and then with Kenny on the bump. Now, two hour and ten minutes, you're probably in the fifth inning. I, I think the game has changed, and, and it's probably you know, even more so for Bucky. Yeah, it has. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing that, that, you know, you just said is you didn't play your round, you know, up in Maryland. Well, actually, when I grew up, we didn't play year round either. We played all sports. You know, I played football, baseball, basketball. You know, we got out and did other things where it seems to me now these kids and it just gets under my skin a little bit, you know, like even my grandkids is they're playing almost 90, 100 games a year at 10, 11, and 12 years old. And I keep telling my daughter, you know, sooner or later they're going to have, they're going to get burned out or they're going to get hurt. You have to give them some time off, you know, and I know all this training and stuff that kids are doing today, but you still have to rest your body at some point. I agree. And so what I think is happening nowadays is basically the survival of the fittest, right? So any player any young athlete that survives the grind of playing 100 games a year and, and has the natural ability, they get to the big leagues quick. I mean, if you look at the average age of a major leaguer today, it's, it's the youngest it's ever been. The unfortunate part of that is because of the grind, because of all the lifting weights and all the extra innings that the pitchers have been throwing and the position players have been playing, they're getting hurt at a rate that we've never seen before. Tommy John surgeries are through the roof, even with all of the information we have and everything we're trying to do to protect pitchers, Tommy John surgeries are through the roof. You know, position players are getting hurt left and right. The soft tissue injuries are, are through the roof. I mean, I pretty much played 150 games a year for the first 10 years of my career. At 32 years old, I hit a wall. Now, you know, 32, 33, I went down quick. But I had, a, I had a pretty good run from 22 to 32. Now you see guys 25, 26, 27 pulling hamstrings left and right. You know, these guys are, are, are missing tons and tons of games because they have had so many innings under their belts and they have had so much training, year-round training their entire lives. And I think it's a cumulative action where, unfortunately, their bodies just can't handle it. And, Bucky, you make a great point. You have to rest. And I was, I was a big proponent the second half of my career for resting. It wasn't easy for, for a manager to give me, give me a day off when even when I told him my bat was heavy and, and it was going to be tough for me to swing tonight, he said, yeah, but you're a gold glove first baseman. Get out there. And, and right. that's the fact of the matter. You are a tremendous first baseman. And that's one position along with shortstop that I think has really changed in baseball. You know, back when I was playing, they say, hey, put the big donkey over first base because he can hit. That's not happening anymore. I mean, you got guys, I mean, I coached some really and played with some great first basemen. You know, I mean, I started with Dick Allen in, in Chicago and Jim Spencer and Tony Muser and, of course, Snatcher Chambliss in, in New York, you know, and, uh, you know, first base. And then, of course, when I coached, you know, I had Will Clark in, in Texas, Lee Stevens, who I thought was a tremendous first baseman, Rafael Palmero. So, and then, you know, you take yourself, 
that's a position that I know as a defensive player, as a shortstop, that if I know that I can go in the hole and I can just come up and throw it and I got a first baseman can dig it out of the dirt, that's the greatest thing in the world. And you saved guys so many errors over the course of the years that you were in New York. You know, the, the other thing I was going to say, how easy was it for you? Did, did you have in your mind as you got older that, that you wanted to transition to be a broadcaster? You know what, Bucky? I, I always enjoyed talking about the game. Now, I enjoyed it more after I went three for four with a home run, um, but I enjoyed talking about the game. And so uh, when you're in New York for eight years like I was, you're in front of cameras every single day. And I, I did a few things with ESPN and Major League Baseball Network for a couple years, kind of in the, in the off-season, postseason type stuff, and I enjoyed it. But you know, ESPN, the day that I retired, or the day I announced my retirement, it was August of 2016, the ESPN called me and said, listen, Mark, we, we want to be your first interview because we think you'd be great as a TV analyst. And I've really enjoyed it. I always knew that, that it, it was a possibility. Uh, I thought I would try it out for a couple years and, and see if I like it. You know, I'm now in my fourth year, and I really enjoy it. I get to still be a fan. keeps me close to the game. But it's not a grind. Uh, you know, I, I only work 50 days on the set, and then I have a, a home studio at my house in Connecticut, and, and I do some things for Sports Center or Get Up or what have you. So it's it's not a grind. And baseball is it's a fun game. I love it. I get to stay close to the game without you know without it taking up 24 seven. So when you were doing those foul territory videos, uh, you know, joking around, was that was that your audition reel? It really wasn't. You know, I started that because towards the end of my career spring training got really, really boring for me. Only towards the end? Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, at, at, when you're young, you can bring your family. The kids aren't in school. Even the first few years, I didn't have any kids. So I'm out playing golf, you know, after workouts and stuff like that. So spring training was kind of fun. When you're older, your kids are at home. You know, you're, you're, you're miserable because you're bored. You miss them. You've done the same thing for, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 years straight. So I, I wanted to do something to, to mix it up in spring training, to have some fun with the guys. And that year in particular, 2014, we had a ton of new players. And everyone comes to the Yankees, and they're a little bit uptight because they hear how tough it is, pressure cooker, how bad the media can be. And so I wanted all of the new guys, Brian McCann, Jacoby Ellsbury, Masahiro Tanaka, Kelly Johnson. I wanted all those guys just to have a little bit of fun and realize that the Yankees – aren't just business. You know, we do enjoy ourselves and let's try to mix up the monotony of spring training. That's one thing you have to do. I mean, we had guys like Sparky Lyle and Mickey Rivers and, you know, Lou Pinella and, and Catfish Hunter. And those guys would absolutely keep you loose and, and fun and Thurman Munson, you know, joking around and stuff like that. Because this game, like you said, will humble you and bring you to your knees. But my last question for you, who's the toughest pitcher that you had to face in your career? Well, we've mentioned him today. It's Mariano Rivera. And the reason I say that, I, I believe I was one for nine with a walk against Mo in my career. The reason I say he was the toughest was that I knew what was coming. I knew the location. I knew the speed. And I still couldn't hit it. I, <laughs> he was so frustrating. The domination that he had over the league for, for 20 years when he threw one pitch is, is amazing. And, you know, we do not win a World Series. I, the Yankees probably don't win any of their five World Series without Mo on the team. I know he became a closer, you know, in his second year. John Wetland was, was the actual closer. But, I mean, he was a guy that 
because he could control that pitch so well, he was so consistent. And I could be on top of my game. And if Justin Verlander or, or, or Roy Halladay or Felix Hernandez, if they made a mistake, I was going to get him. Like, that's what I felt. When I was on top of my game, I could get any great pitcher. I don't care if you're a Cy Young winner. Even at the top of my game, Mo was going to beat me every single time. I think my one hit was like a broken bat, you know, blooper over the, the second baseman's head, something like that. But he was impressive, and I was just lucky to be able to play with him for all those years. Well, I tell you, Mark, this has been, I could talk to you for another two hours, but I know you got to run. I know you're busy. You do a great job on ESPN and, and what a great interview. I'm just enjoying it. And uh, please tell your dad, I said, hello, get that number. Cause I'd love to see him when I go to Atlanta, but we want to thank you so much for being on today. All the best to you. And uh, hopefully baseball, you know, comes back soon because we sure miss it. Well, I, I hope so too, Bucky. And uh, this has been fun. I'll, we'll do it again. Okay. I'd love to talk to you again. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark. guys. Wow, what a great interview. I mean, I just love talking to him and the stories and, you know, about his career and the things that he went through. I mean, it, it was just awesome. It's so not surprising to see him succeeding on ESPN. I mean, I was laughing when I asked him about that foul territory show he did, which was obviously a joke. But I mean, even there, you could see it. It was just a guy who kind of understood the value of putting himself out there on TV and things like that and having fun with it. Oh, man, just just a class guy. And uh, it's just fun to see guys succeed like that and, and go on and be able to do it off the field. Also, go up in the booth and be able to talk baseball and have so much knowledge. It's, it's fun to listen to guys like that. I agree with you guys, you know, Bucky, you said it best at the end when you said you could have talked to him for two more hours. He, he is the kind of guy you could talk about baseball with, it seems like, forever and never get bored. Um, he's got so much to offer, you know, a decade and a half in the game and playing it at a high level. And, you know, also in his case, seeing some of the really great highs that the sport can offer and, and some of the low. I think he's just, he's experienced so much and, and he really knows how to articulate it. One funny thing for me is I, one of my best friends from college was actually a high school pitcher in Maryland and he played in high school against Teixeira and he always told us, you know, that one time he struck Mark Teixeira out and everything like that and we always laugh about it. And the reason I bring that up is last year when I was in Akron talking to Thurman's family right before the 40th anniversary, you know, his son Mike was telling me that every time he meets anybody local, every single one of them is like, man, I struck out your dad that one time. And he always jokes. He's like, of course you did. Everyone struck out my dad. My dad never got a hit in high school based on the fact that every single person I meet seems to claim they struck him out. And yet... Who knows? He seemed to have a pretty decent major league career out of it anyhow. So it, it, uh, every time I speak to, to Cher, it always makes me wonder about my friend's story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody, somebody always got a story about striking somebody. I struck out a lot of times. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this is awesome. And obviously, you know, it's great that we can do this stuff on the phone like this, but I know, I, I think I speak for all three of us. I'd really love to get in a room together sometime soon and uh, laugh together and share baseball stories together. But of course, in the meantime, thank you so much, all everyone, for listening to this episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. We got four episodes in the can now. I'm really excited about the way things are going. Bucky, you're a natural at this stuff. 
Well, thank you very much. You know, I'm learning. I'm learning from you guys. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, who, you never know. <laughs> Imagine how much better we're going to keep getting at this. In the meantime, please, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. Rate and review us. All those stars really help. All those reviews help. This is just one part of the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. I hope you'll also check out the Yankees Magazine Podcast. It comes out every other Thursday. Our most recent episode is an interview I did with MLB.com's Mark Feinstein, so be sure to check that one out. And then you can read all of our Yankees Magazine stories at yankees.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine and write to us, podcast at yankees.com. Give us any thoughts you have, any ideas you have, any questions you'd like Bucky to answer, and we can't wait to hear from you. I can't stress this enough. I think I say this every time. There's nothing in the world I want more than for my family to stay healthy and then for there to be baseball again pretty soon. And so far, so good in the family. Now we just need baseball. So in the meantime, Bucky, Al, great talking to you guys. Hope to see you soon in person. And everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you. Hey, this is Giancarlo Stan. If you like what you're hearing, why don't you rate and review us? And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks so much and go Yankees. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.